Well, good evening, everyone. Welcome to our last Wednesday night for the semester. We're going to be taking a break after tonight, and um, kind of a summer break, and we will resume. I think the back of your bulletin is a, is a reminder of that um, right after Labor Day. I think it's September 9. I don't have one with me, but I think it's September 9. We'll be starting back up here, so hopefully you guys will enjoy longer days and some nice summer evenings, and, and uh, we'll look forward to being back together. I want to really thank Pastor Jeff for uh, stepping in for me last week, Pastor Jeff Lucas, kind of last-minute notice. He has that amazing ability to um, step in and teach, and just a lot of you have asked, um, and he mentions just something about my wife's health. She was in the hospital for about eight days, and uh, because of some medication that she had received for another issue, had some ulcers and just a lot of bleeding, and and so got some blood transfusions and and um, long long week. But but we're home, and we just felt so just supported and loved by our Timberline family. And so just thank you guys so much for everything that that you guys are to us. That that really really means a lot when when things go bad and and people kind of step up and they just show up and do things. It it means. An enormous amount. So thank you very much. I'm really, really thankful for that. Well, we're, we're concluding a series that, that we've been doing called Five Spiritual Growth Catalysts. Um, and I just, I feel like this is so key for me, for I think for all of us, because as I think about my life, my, my biggest desire, and we talked about this week one, is to be the version of Brent that God intended and we called it a flourishing self. Like, man, I want to, I want to be the flourishing version of me. And then, I, and then I see in Scripture that the only person who wants that more than I do is God. God wants that for me. He wants me to be a flourishing person. And so he, 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 his, his goal is to, the language that's used in Scripture is to shape me into the image of Christ. That is inwardly, not my personality, but my heart, my attitude. My reactions, my will gets conformed to the image of Christ. And so we kind of started going, okay, well, if that's, that's, God's, that's his end goal, like how does he get there? How do you suppose he gets me there? And we would say, well, every time that we sit down and we kind of start talking about our life of faith, how we grow, ways we've grown in the past, they all seem to fall under one of these five categories, or we could put them in one of these five buckets. And so we talked about practical teaching. This is kind of the ideas, those aha moments. It, it lets me know where I am and where I need to go. It's God's truth when it's revealed to me, when I see Scripture practically, when I can say, oh, that's what I do, that's what it means. I see the connection with my life. Private disciplines. These are those experiences of maybe worship all by myself or reading Scripture all by myself or memorizing a passage of Scripture or, or, or meditating or solitude. These sort of disciplines that I do all on my own privately, secretly, just, just God and I. And it becomes this more personal, hands-on relationship with God. Personal ministry is the, is the time when I step out and I go, man, I feel so inadequate and I'm scared to death of doing this, but I'm going to serve. I'm going to go plug in over there. I'm going I'm to serve someone else with all my inadequacy. And I see God come through and I go, wow, and my faith grows. And then last week, Pastor Jeff talked about this idea of providential relationships. This idea that as I look back over all the relationships of my life, I see certain times when, man, that person intersected my life at just the right moment. I really needed that person in my life. They, they helped me in some way. They mentored me. It might have been a long relationship or it might have been just even a short interaction. But there was a, a relationship that I look back and I go, that was providential, meaning God provided it. And then tonight we're kind of rounding it up by talking about the fifth one here, the fifth spiritual growth catalyst, and that's pivotal circumstances. 
Um, if you have your bulletin, there's a, there's a couple blanks to fill in there as we go. If you want to, um, when, when people tell their stories of, of kind of their faith journeys, they always include events, things that happen, circumstances that, that they describe as defining moments. That was a defining moment in my life. That defined who I am, my outcome, or my direction. And some are good. Some are like awesome things. Um, being awarded a scholarship. Someone will tell you, man, I got into this college because I got this scholarship. Totally changed my direction. And because then I met this professor and all these sorts of things, everything changed in my life. It might be discovering some new opportunity, some new passion, something that they, that they love. It might be getting married. Man, I got married and for this relationship in my life. It might be having a child. Man, I became a parent. My, my whole life just turned around and it just impacted me. And I started thinking about these things and I can't live this way. So I made some big changes in my life. And it was a, it was a defining moment where I got a job transfer. And I moved to a new place and I got this neighbor and this, you know. And you kind of notice too as we talk, these things are really intermingled, aren't they? A pivotal circumstance could have a big impact on, man, I, I you know, this, this idea. I moved to this place and I talked to this person uh, uh, a providential relationship, and then I started serving, and we really these things are kind of intertwined a lot. We can't really pull them out too much. But either way, life throws these things at us. Now, sometimes things are really good and they're awesome like that. Those are, those are pivotal circumstances. But lots of times, the pivotal circumstances that we have come with a lot of hurt, a lot of pain, or a lot of disappointment. It could be um, maybe, maybe you, you lose someone that you love. Or, or maybe um, you're worried because, uh, you know, divorce hits your family. Your family breaks up. Or maybe it's a prolonged illness. You get a call from the doctor. You go in and visit and you get news that you didn't want to hear. Maybe someone betrays you. Maybe, maybe there's a scandal and your, your identity uh, is, is absolutely up in question. Some, something happens. The bottom falls out. And it's a, it's a scary situation, a scary scenario and as you know when it comes to faith this is the first blank to fill in there in your outline when it comes to faith circumstances cut both ways don't they a positive event can negatively affect your faith or a positive event can strengthen your face your faith now adverse circumstances they they can damage your faith really badly or they can deepen your faith. People, people lose their faith when life gets too easy. And sometimes people lose their faith when life gets too hard, when they face tragedy in some way. But either way, life has the potential of moving us away from God or toward God. Listen, listen to Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 through 9. This is a fascinating passage. These, this comes from the sayings of Agur. And this is, this is what he says. And listen, listen to what he's recognizing about this inward part of his life and some concern about his future. He says, two things I ask of you, Lord. This is a prayer. Two things, God, that I want in life. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Now, here's why he makes that request. That's it. Don't give me riches. Don't give me poverty. Just help me to walk in that kind of middle place. Why? Because, because this is what I'm afraid of. This is my concern. Verse 9. Other ways, otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who's the Lord? 
This is this idea that he's going to develop a sense of sort of extreme independence in some way, self-sufficiency in my identity. He says, or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. I might, trust, I might stop trusting that God really will take care of me. And so I walk away from this obedient life of following God. And what's so fascinating is he's saying, I'm kind of freaked out about these two possibilities. If my life goes really, really well, Okay, a pivotal circumstance, and I'm blessed and things are awesome. What if I kind of start feeling more sufficient in who I am and I walk away from God? Or what if something horrible happens? Man, and it just it hits me like to the ground, and I start questioning, does God really care? Does he really love? And, and I start thinking, well, I'm going to have to take care of myself because obviously God's not taking care of me. And so I walk away from that life of following him. And he says, man, I, I get freaked out when I think about how pivotal circumstances on either side could completely rock me and shake me. He has a self-awareness, which I think is pretty cool, of his weakness. He understands, man, I could fall either way. I don't know which way it would be, but I could fall either way. Here's what I'd like you to do. I want you to turn your tables, three-minute table talk. We do this every week. And I want you to discuss this question right here that's up on the screen. Which of these two... Which of these kind of two extremes that Agur talks about? Soaring success, okay, wonderful things, or really disturbing difficulty do you think poses the greatest danger to your faith? Have you ever thought about that? Which of these two would you say, man, that one honestly scares me a little bit more. I'm, I'm more worried about that one. Okay? Three minutes, and then we will pull back together. Go ahead.
Okay. One of the challenges of, you know, these catalysts as we're looking at them and thinking about them, the first three, one, two, and three, these are things that you kind of have a lot of control over, I would say. Like, uh, you, can, you, can, you can listen to a podcast. You can, go, you can find a church that, that gives practical teaching. You can learn how to, okay, how, you know, what does it mean to have private disciplines? You can learn those skills. You can get engaged. You can go sign up for personal ministry. These two are a little different, aren't they? It's like if, if this part requires kind of more of my effort, this part is me just kind of like being available or something. I mean, I can't create providential relationships. Now, do I have a part in it? Yeah, if I sit at home in my closet and go, God, give me a providential relationship. Sit, get, no, I have to put myself out there. I have to join a small group. I have to be in, in settings where God can do it, but it's still totally dependent upon him. Same way, pivotal circumstances. The hard part about this one is like, you never know when they're coming. Like, I don't, I don't look at my calendar and be like, oh, next Thursday I've got a, a pivotal circumstance coming up here. Like, you don't know when it's going to... In fact, you don't even know until you're in the middle of it, right? Which, what's going on, whether it's a great thing or a really difficult thing. But we all know that as you think about your own story, big, emotionally charged, unexpected life events face us, and they, they threaten to either erode our faith... Or they give the possibility of really deepening our faith. Now tonight, and again, honestly, both of those possibilities are equally dangerous. Um, about a year ago, in fact, if you want to listen online, you can jump on, online. July 2014, on a, on a weekend message, I spoke on Ecclesiastes 9. And, and I talked about this side. I talked about the danger of good and true and beautiful things kind of choking out our love for God. Tonight I want to focus on the equally dangerous piece, and that's... That's the adverse situations, the adversity, the, the life circumstances that, man, they're hard, they hit us, and it's not, oh, wow, this is wonderful. It's, man, I don't, what happened? And it threatens to kind of take our, our knees out from underneath us. So as you see in your outline there, here's, here's the question I want to ask. What makes the difference as to which way, meaning right or left, you know, which way I go, uh, a pivotal circumstance pushes a person in relation to his or her faith. And I would suggest that when we think about all our lives, if you, if you go back and you think about all the big ones, it's, it's not really the event itself that eroded your faith or grew your faith. It was your interpretation of the event. It's how you interpreted the circumstance or the event that you were in. See, the conclusions that, that we draw about God in the midst of one of these one of these pivotal circumstances, the conclusions that I draw either drive me to Christ or they push me away from Christ. But it's not the situation itself. It is not the situation itself. And you know this is true. It depends on what sort of meaning you derive from it. Uh, Walter Isaacson is the um, biographer of uh, Steve Jobs, who just passed away, the, the kind of the you know, brainchild behind Apple and Macintosh. And um, Walter Isaacson tells... Um, about a crisis of faith that Steve Jobs had when he was a 13-year-old boy. He grew up in the Lutheran church. And when he was 13, he was looking at the July 12, 1968 cover of Life magazine. And on this cover were, were two little children from Biafra, a region that seceded uh, for about two and a half years from Nigeria, and there was a big civil war, there was famine that went on. As a result of it, in the two and a half year period, one million people, children, adults, 
were killed, were murdered, or they died. And these two little children were on the cover of this Life magazine article. And um, Steve Jobs, looking at this, couldn't reconcile that with the, the, the Sunday school Jesus and, and, and the all-powerful God that he had been hearing about at church. And so Isaac, Isaacson tells that what he did the next week was he took this magazine to, to church with him, to Sunday school, and he, he approached his pastor. And this is, this is what he says in the biography. He said, Steve took it, meaning the magazine, to Sunday school, confronted the church's pastor, and he asked this question. If I raise my finger, will God know which one I'm going to raise even before I do it? The pastor answered, yes, God knows everything. Jobs then pulled out the life cover and asked, well, does God know about this and what's going to happen to those children? And Isaacson goes on to say that the answer that he received was less than acceptable to Jobs. And according to Isaacson, after that conversation, Steve Jobs never went back to church after that. But see, what I would suggest that it was not because of the picture on the front cover of that magazine that he threw away his faith or that he jettisoned his faith or that he walked away from the church. It was his interpretation of that picture that drove him away. See, the conclusions that he drew were that the Sunday school God he knew about and hungry children could not be reconciled, those two realities. Now, many of you, I, I, I know stories, I could, many of you could tell give examples of stories. You've, you've gone on a missions trip before. You've lived in another part of the world. You've gone to maybe a third uh, a third country world where you've, you, you've walked somewhere and you've seen people who, who are starving. You've seen children whose lives have been absolutely ravaged, adults whose lives have been ravaged by poverty and horrible economic conditions. But you didn't draw this conclusion. You came back, one, grateful for what you had, but you came back motivated to do something because you believed that God was 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 as frustrated and disappointed and made sick to his stomach as you were by the realities of what you saw. And you believe that one day God would wipe away all evil and all destruction, wipe every tear. And, and, and so because of that, you came to a different conclusion because of it all. See, you interpreted what you saw differently. So how a person interprets your circumstances depends upon what? Well, two things. This is in your, in your outline there. The first one, the way that you're going to interpret an event or a pivotal circumstance in your life is first of all dependent upon your worldview. Your worldview, which is to say how you understand life and reality to be. These are the lenses through which you see the world. It's categories you have in your mind about what's real, what's true, what's beautiful, all those sorts of things. Uh, a few years back in um, 2008, May of 2000, early May, I was at a Starbucks, uh, one over on uh, Drake and Trilby, and I had a meeting there. And I was done, and I was I was walking out. I was I was leaving, and, and as I was walking, I noticed I noticed this guy. He was a timberliner, and I had I knew him. He was an acquaintance. He wasn't a good friend of mine, but so I just kind of stopped. I said, Hey, you know how you doing? Just he was sitting outside on a patio, and I was outside a patio. I was walking in my car, heading to my next appointment. And, and, uh, and he just, he seemed kind of down. I said, you know, what's going on? And, and he goes, ah, you don't, you don't want to hear about it. I said, no, no, just, you know, talk to me. What's happening? He goes, I'm just, I'm done with this God thing. I'm done with it. I said, why? What, like, what happened? What's going on? And he said, because it doesn't work. 
I said, what do you mean it doesn't work? He goes, well, I've been doing all these things. I'm reading my Bible. I'm, I'm claiming all these promises. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm believing all these positive beliefs. I'm doing all these sorts of... And as he's talking, I'm saying, okay, he's, he's basically saying, I'm doing this formula. I'm doing all these things that are supposed to have, and then my life is supposed to be wonderful and blessed. And he goes, and it's not working, so I'm done with this God because it's obviously not real. And I realized this guy's worldview about what God is, is that if I appease God, if I do X, Y, and Z, he will give me what I want. That's called the prosperity gospel. If I say something or believe something or do something, God is my sugar daddy. And he gives me whatever I want, and it's about, it's about my pleasure. But I have control over it. It's a formulaic approach rather than a relational trust in this God. And so I sat down with him, and I started talking. I said, what, how, how did you get to that conclusion? I'm going to you know, point out a couple you know, TV preachers. Well, I listened to this guy, and he said, listen to this guy. I said, have you, have you done even like a casual reading of Scripture? And you see that God's constantly you know, going to Abraham and Job and all these different people, and Paul has a thorn in the flesh, and pe- people's lives who follow God don't just get all wonderful. That God, oftentimes God's strength is showcased on the stage of human weakness. And so we talked for about an hour, and, and by the end, I, I think it was... I think it was helpful. He, I think he said, okay, maybe I've been wrong. Maybe, maybe kind of my concept of God was wrong, and I'm not going to give up on it yet. And so we, we prayed together, and he said, you know, this is good. You know, this is helpful. This is, you know, this is kind of one of those providential relationships, and we talked about practical teaching. Well, about uh, a couple weeks later, I was watching TV, sitting in my house, um, May 28, 2008, and I saw his picture come up on the, the news um, he was delivering divorce papers to someone, and the man who he was delivering to went berserk, took a baseball bat, and beat him to death, and then did some other things. And I remember at that moment wondering what would have happened to his faith. Was his faith intact? I don't know. I hope it was. But at that moment, I thought his worldview, had he gone down this path of saying this worldview, it completely shaped his experience of all of his circumstances, you know, financially wasn't doing well, and this relationship is going to pot, and this is going bad. He was interpreting all through a worldview, which is causing him to go, there's no God. He was walking away from God. But a worldview adjustment allowed him to say, okay, maybe, maybe there's purpose. Maybe this God hasn't really done what I think he's done. See, if, if my worldview... Okay, how I understand reality is convinced that, as James 1.17 says, every good and perfect gift comes from God. And it's convinced that, as 1 Corinthians 10.26 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Then I'm going to believe that everything, it all belongs to God anyway. I'm just a manager. I'm just, I'm just a steward. I'm just holding it. Then when good things happen, when awesome things happen, those good things won't become a distraction to my faith. Likewise, if my worldview holds that, as Romans 8.28 says, and we know that in all things, meaning all pivotal circumstances, God works for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. If I believe that, if that's part of my worldview, then what, while God doesn't necessarily keep bad things from happening to me, I can be sure that he will use all of those good things or all those bad things to strengthen my faith, to draw me closer to God. He can use the, the painful, pivotal circumstances all of a sudden can be viewed as an opportunity. They still hurt just as much, 
Paul talks about we mourn, but not like other people mourn. We still hurt, we still cry, we still mourn, but not the same way. Because my worldview gives me a totally different approach to it. Okay, so that's the first way. first way that I will interpret pivotal circumstances, how I will interpret them, is by my worldview. The second big factor in how I will interpret pivotal circumstances is who we are doing life with at the time. This is relationships. Who, who are the people who have access to you at the time? Your friends, your, your family, your mentors, your teachers, people who influence you. Uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes, the Old Testament book, makes this really um, uh, interesting statement when he, he talks about, um, in Ecclesiastes 4.10, he says, we should have pity on people who fall and have no one to help them get back up on their feet. See, we've all seen that happen. We've seen people who, who because of a pivotal circumstance, life has kind of taken them out at the knees. And they, they didn't have someone to help them properly contextualize things. How do I understand what's going on in my life? See, when, when our faith is down, we need people who will speak truth to us. Now, again, this doesn't mean that the minute someone's going through a hard time, oh, you know, let me quote a Bible verse. That, that, you know, mourn with those who mourn, weep with those who weep. We, we engage in people's suffering and their grief. But there's a place at which, an appropriate place, which wisdom knows when that is, that we speak truth to friends, that I need that in my life. I need friends who will remind me of God's faithfulness in the past. I've got that in my life. I've got family who, when, when times are going difficult and, and they can kind of see that I'm just going, oh, I'm just ready to give up. And they go, do you, remember, do you remember when this happened? you remember when you were in college and you're trying to figure out this decision? you remember when you guys moved? Remember when you moved down to New Orleans? This is, remember how faithful God was? And I kind of recount, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Okay, I can take another step. I can go one more day. I can do it. Because I remember God's faithfulness in the past. You ever read the Old Testament? How often? Why is it that God always tells Israel, I want you guys to celebrate the time I delivered you from Egypt. I want you to celebrate this. I want you to celebrate this time. I want you to celebrate the time I did this. Because he wants them all throughout their calendrical year to go, oh yeah, God's faithful. Oh yeah, God's faithful. Oh yeah, God's faithful. Because that's what lets them know when, when they're in a pivotal circumstance that goes, that doesn't look like God's being very faithful. No. Oh yeah, I remember. God is always faithful. So while it's dangerous to be disconnected from other believers anytime, anytime in your life, it's especially dangerous when things are not going well. See, we need to be able to find God in the midst of life's pivotal circumstances. And when we do, when we do, our faith is strengthened. Our trust in God grows. When people help us contextualize the reality of what's going on, my confidence in God grows. I spiritually, it's a spiritual catalyst for me in my life. Pivotal circumstances test me and potentially strengthen me. They strengthen my confidence in God. But for that to happen, I need people and I need them to help me to be able to contextualize with a biblical worldview to interpret what's going on. Uh, it's interesting, there's been a lot of uh, social psychological research done in the past few years on the relationship between adversity, difficult circumstances, and, and just personal life growth. Um, now, w- one line of thinking says that adversity can lead to growth, and that's true, and we can think of examples. 
there's another line of thinking out there with the research that actually asserts that the highest level of personal growth in a person's life cannot be achieved without adversity. And that's kind of a whole new interesting realm of study because it's not just, well, how do people get through it, but can people really achieve all that they're called to do without some sort of adversity? Now, again, adversity does not always automatically lead to growth, does it? Adversity can be uh, crippling. It can be debilitating in our lives. But a lot of that depends on, like we're saying, my response. And my response is how do I interpret what's going on? So let me just, let me just go through four ways. This is in your outline here. I want to go through four ways that these kind of adverse pivotal circumstances can grow me, can grow you. The first one, rising to a challenge, some difficulty, some mountain to climb, rising to a challenge develops and reveals abilities hidden within you, and we would say and beyond you, that would otherwise have remained dormant. I remember when I was in college, I, I had a college roommate named Eric. In fact, he just, it's funny, he just called me this last week, and he's, he was, he's going to be coming out here and asked if, if we could get together. But I, I remember the statement that he, had, that he always made to me. We were, we were in my dorm room one time, and we are just talking about just tough times and you know, that sort of thing. And he goes, man, you never know what's in your cup until you get bumped. And what he was saying is, you know, it's, it's when life bumps you, it's when life hits you that you know what's in your cup because it's going to spill out. It's like a tube of toothpaste. You don't know what's in it until you squeeze it. In this note, you see, wise people have, have known from all time, from all cultures, that there's a connection between suffering, between adversity and growth. Listen to this statement from this Chinese sage, Meng Su, from the 3rd century B.C. He writes this, When heaven is about to confer a great responsibility on any man, it will exercise his mind with suffering, place obstacles in the path of his deeds, so as to stimulate his mind, harden his nature, and improve where he is incompetent. Isn't that interesting? But you know what? No, nowhere like in the, I mean, the Bible knows this reality, I would say, more than anywhere else. Think about these examples all throughout Scripture. God could have let Abraham stay in Ur instead of calling out. We just did this weekend series that Pastor Jeff finished us up on this last week about Abraham. He could have left Abraham in the comfort of where he was instead of calling him out to a land that he didn't know, a place he didn't know, people he didn't know. He could have let Moses stay in the splendor of Pharaoh's court. God could have kept David away from Goliath. He could have kept Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego out of the fiery furnace. He could have kept Daniel out of the lion's den. He could have kept Elijah away from Jezebel. He could have kept um, Jonah out of the fish. He could have kept Esther from being threatened. He could have kept John the Baptist out of Herod's um, prison. He could have kept Paul from being shipwrecked. He could have kept John out of the island of Patmos and out of exile. But he didn't, did he? He used every single one of those circumstances to grow something in them that they were not expecting. See, they were probably, like I am, they were praying that God would be involved making the circumstances I want them to be. But in reality, God was involved in the circumstances making them the people that he wanted them to be. Totally different approach, totally different look. But they didn't discover that until they were on this side of the pivotal circumstance of their life. You know, one of the most misquoted verses, uh, it's not really a verse in the Bible, uh, is this one, God will never give you more than you can handle. 
what? Are you kidding? God gives you more than you can handle all the time. Uh, plague, genocide, war, famine. Um, the Bible, now the Bible does say that no temptation is given to you without a way out, but that's about temptation. That's not about adversity. In fact, the one thing that you can't avoid, that's your death, you, no way you can handle that. You, there's no way that you will. Now, you will never be in a situation that God cannot handle. That's very true. Nothing, including death, in fact, we're told, will separate us from God's loving hand, his care, his protection. But this idea that you will never have a situation that you cannot handle, that's baloney. That's not, that's not in Scripture. Maybe you're in a situation right now, and as you think about it, maybe it's a relationship that, that, that's just, or maybe someone's walked away and they've kind of just gone against everything of what it means to, uh, that you hold to. Maybe it's a financial crisis. It's, it's, it's something that just, you know, kind of the bottom is dropping, or it seems to be, or it's just so unknown. It's not what you wanted, and you want to lie down and die. You want to just absolutely give up. But you know what? When you don't, when you just show up, when you just get up one more time, when you just offer what little inadequacy, what itty-bitty tiny little strength that you have, God God begins doing something inside your soul. It's an inside work. It's not the circumstances. That's what I think about, pray about most things. But he begins doing something to me when I just show up, when I have no energy and I'm totally tired. And what he's doing inside of me is far more important than all the circumstances going on outside of me. Because, see, your circumstances, my, my circumstances, the very best ones, they're temporary. Even the best ones, they're temporary, and we know that. The only thing that's not temporary is the person you are becoming. The person I am becoming. That's the thing I take into eternity with me. The person I become. Number two, real quickly. Adversity can deepen relationships. Uh, Romans 12, 15 and 16. Paul makes this comment. We talked about this earlier. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. And then he talks about this idea of harmony coming out in our lives. Re- Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. There's something relationally unique that happens when in our mourning, in our grief, in our suffering, in our adverse, difficult, pivotal circumstances, someone enters that with us. When they share that grief, there is a relational connection that that doesn't happen anywhere else in life. If you've you've ever been to like a 12-step group, there's sort of the same experience that happens every time. People walk into the group, and whether they've been there for a long time or they're a newcomer, they go through the same thing. It's the same liturgy every single time, right? They stand up and they say their name, and they say what their brokenness is, right? Hi, I'm Bill, and I'm an alcoholic. And what's the, what does everyone say back? Yeah. Hi, Bill. And do you know what, you know what people report who are there, people who first come? They say, when that happened... In that moment, what I heard when everyone said, hi, Bill, it was, you belong. You're loved. You're not alone. You're embraced. And they will tell you that one experience right there has done miraculous things in their life and their heart, that through that, God has done things. Because all of a sudden they know, I'm not alone. I can be exposed about my brokenness. And people are, are, are entering my grief, entering my brokenness. And all of a sudden, I have a level of connection. And people will tell you, if they've, with their sponsor or people they've been through, they have a level of intimacy, relational connection, those people that you will rarely find anywhere else. And the reason why is because someone entered 
their grief with them. Someone entered that pivotal, adverse circumstance with them. One of, one of my heroes of the faith, uh, I've talked about her before in the past, Johnny Erickson Tata, is a woman who, when she was just a, a young teenager, like graduating high school, ready for a whole life ahead of her, had this diving accident. She became, became paralyzed, and she's constrained to a wheelchair. And she's been constrained to a wheelchair for decades, decades. Uh, she's middle-aged now. And, and she will tell you every single day she would love to get up and walk. She will tell you that every single day I would love to be able to get up and walk. But she would also tell you that she has met God and she has been able to love people in ways that she never could have imagined on her own because of that chair, because of that darn chair. She has been able to bring living hope to, I mean, literally millions of people in ways that she never could have done without that chair. Now that chair is part of the curse, but she thanks God that he has redeemed part of that curse number three adversity can change your priorities about what really matters Uh, bill dallas wrote a book um, called lessons from san quentin in which he talks about the moment of his greatest suffering became the the turning point in his life Uh, bill had been living for money and possessions and beauty and, and um, all of these things and doing quite well with them. Uh, Bill got involved in some less than transparent uh, financial interactions and because of that ended up going to San Quentin prison. And, and there the strangest thing happened. He met God. Um, Bill found a group of men who were serving life sentences and he discovered people with a greater sense of peace a deeper sense of meaning than people he knew in the best penthouses and the best corner offices that he had ever known in his life. And people who were experiencing the deepest kind of community than anyone he had ever known. And more and more, these people were becoming the best versions of themselves. They were flourishing. Their circumstances were the same, but he saw them flourishing inwardly. And Bill says that if he were to visit one more place before he dies, it wouldn't be the Eiffel Tower wouldn't be the Great Wall of China, wouldn't be the Taj Mahal. He said, I would like to visit that prison cell where I met God. I would like to go back to that pivotal circumstance, because as bad as it was, as rotten as was, as much as it rocked my life, it was that, through that, that it drew me to God. Soren Kierkegaard, a Danish philosopher and theologian, speaking of affliction, speaking of these adverse pivotal circumstances, he said, affliction is able to drown out every earthly voice. Isn't that true when you're in adversity? It's able to drown out every earthly voice, but the voice of eternity, deep in the soul, it cannot drown. There's only one voice that adversity can't. It's that inward voice of eternity, of God's own voice. Number four, last one. Adversity points us to the hope capital H, beyond ourselves. Um, any, any guesses what the, the, the single largest publication was in the 1960s? What, what book, magazine, or, or print product do you think surpassed all others? It was actually a catalog. Any guesses? Not Sears and Roebuck. 
not Montgomery Ward, not the Bible. It was, I'll tell you next week, okay? You guys come back next week. Um, it was actually uh, a, a company that was called Spurry and Hutchinson. Spurry and Hutchinson, better known as SNH. And they made SNH green stamps. At their height in the 60s, SNH printed three times more stamps than the U.S. government did. And they published enough catalogs to more than circle the earth. And so here was the idea is that if you, if you saved up enough of these, of these green stamps, um, you, could, you could get things like a coffee grinder or a toaster um, or a can opener. And so you, you, would, be, you, you would be coaxed into different um, places that would sell things, and then they would give you green stamps if you, would, if you would buy things there, if you would shop there. And then you would take these green stamps, and you would know where you took them to? To a redemption center. You would take them to a redemption center to be redeemed. Amazingly, apparently, this company still exists, and they are still accepting green stamps. So if you have some, apparently it's not too late. But they're online now more than anywhere else, um, and they're, they're still giving out what's called green points online. Long before the 60s, in fact, since the very beginning of time, God was waiting, God was loving, he was suffering, and then... And what the Bible says, in the fullness of time, at infinite cost to himself, he sent his, his one and only son, Jesus, to a redemption center on a hill called Calvary. And do you know what he wants to redeem? Everything. Romans 8 says all creation is groaning for redemption. He wants to redeem you. He wants to redeem every single thing inside you. He wants to redeem every single circumstance that's happened in your past. Those ones that when you think I wouldn't ever even tell anyone about, he wants to redeem that. He wants to redeem the things you're ashamed of. The things that still enrage you and make you angry. The things that you, that you get angry at God at. He wants to redeem every single thing about your life. See, when, when our circumstances look bleak, when your health is in question, when it's collapsing, when your heart is just sinking because when you think of the realities you have to face, when everything is down, when the stock market's down and you wonder, is anything up? Is anything working or going up? Yes. The chance to, to trust God when trusting isn't easy, that's, that's up. That's still available. The prospect of modeling God-filled hope to, to a world that is just without hope, that's still doable. The possibility of, of cultivating a storm-proof faith, that's a reality. It's still there. And you can do that because there are some things that will never, ever change. God is still sovereign. Grace still beats sin. The Bible still endures. The cross still testifies of self-sacrificial love. The tomb is still empty. Jesus' kingdom is still advancing, and the gates of hell will never, ever prevail against it. God is still very much in the process of this redemption thing. He is still redeeming things. He still specializes in bringing very, very good things out of very, very bad things. Someone who knew that well was Julian of Norwich. Uh, Julian is the first woman that we have record of to actually write a book in English. 
She is a woman who lived during the the Black Plague-infested 14th century. She sang a song from the depths of the trials of her day. These words, it's on your hand out there. But all shall be well, and all shall be well. All manner of things shall be well. He did not say, you shall know no storms or travails or disease. He said, you shall not be overcome. Amen. Let's pray. Would you stand with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for these weeks that we've had to to look at how it is that you will grow us, that you have grown us, that you are growing us. God, I pray that we would walk away from this really taking some, maybe some new perspectives. Maybe we have some uh, new categories in our mind. Maybe some of these have been blind spots to which we'd say, you know, I'm not growing and I feel stalled in my faith and it's frustrating, but honestly, I haven't been thinking about all these different ways that, that God will use as catalysts to really expand my trust in Him, to grow my faith. Would you open our eyes to those blind spots, whatever they might be? God, specifically to this one tonight, uh, Lord, would you just do something new in us? Would you breathe something new in us? Would you help help us to develop a, a Bible-centered, Bible-informed worldview so that when I experience whatever is going to come my way tomorrow, and I don't know what it is, you do, that I will look at it through the lens of Scripture, that I will look at it as the, the way you see it, that I will see challenges, I will see difficulties, I will see things that, that are just drenched in, in even sorrow, God, as opportunities for you to do something inside of me and in community and relationship. God, would you put us in relationship? Help us to, to, to run to the people around us who are in need of that contextualization. Help us to mourn with them, to weep with them, to hold them up. Father, thank you that you are still redeeming. You're still in that job, in that process. Father, we, we thank you for the opportunity just to be a community. And God, as, as we embark on our summer vacation with just life going a lot of different directions, you know what faces us. You know things around the corner before we do. Prepare us, enable us, strengthen us to endure all things, to enjoy all things, to celebrate all things. And Father, would you bring us back together as a family, as a community in the fall uh, as we join. And uh, Lord, keep us faithfully walking toward you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You guys, thank you so much for being a part of Wednesday Night Community. This, is, this has been a fun semester. I've loved it. Um, our prayer team is going to be up front. If you're a Timberline faithful giver, we'll have a deacon at the back. And uh, if you want to drop your offering in there, you can certainly do that. Would love to um, for you guys to grab the rest of the treats and um, go get your kids if you need to, and you can bring them back. Love you guys so much. Have a great summer.